Welcome to episode 42 of the Empowering Ability Podcast. Welcome to the Empowering Ability Podcast, where we get you and your loved ones impacted by disability the information needed to live a full and meaningful life. Now here's your host, Eric Gall. Hey folks, welcome to the podcast. It's been a while since I've recorded a podcast, so it's fun to be back in the host seat and uh, and talking to you. So um, for me, life got pretty busy there uh, just before Christmas in, in 2017. I was helping a lot with my family business, finishing the construction of my new home, which uh, has been an awesome project to work on um, and uh, a real privilege. And um, also working with my sister and, and her support circle to put together the plan and the strategy to help my sister move out of my parents' house, which has been incredible to be a part, a part of and to watch my sister go through that um, incredible growth phase. I've also been working with leaders and families who have a, a loved one with a disability as a coach. Uh, that's something that uh, I've been told that I need to promote more uh, to um, to help other families and, and other uh, leaders to really build and design lives and organizations uh, that they want to make the difference that they want in the world. So uh, that's a big part of what I do. And um, I have a, a business around that. So if that's something that you're interested in, uh, feel free to reach out to me about that and be honored to have a conversation with you. And as well, also working on what we're going to talk about today. Um, we've been doing a ton of research on uh, adult siblings and um the guest today that I'm going to bring on is is Helen Reese. Helen and I, along with uh, a third um, sibling, adult sibling, uh, Becky Rossi, have been really focusing on uh, on this work. So um, just a little bit of housekeeping that I want to do before uh, we bring on Helen. So the pace or the cadence of the of the podcast release uh, last year was about once every week. So moving forward, I'll be releasing an episode um, about every two weeks. So last year it was pretty hectic trying to to get a podcast out every week. I'm pretty proud that I was able to release forty two, and I've got some pretty good feedback on those. And I feel that episode 42 or sorry 41 was um, much better than than episode one uh, and episode two episode three so I feel there's some good um, improvement there but yeah so something just had to give for me with all the priorities that I had going on so we're gonna go every other week it's to publish about a one hour episode to give you an idea it's about 10 hours of work and uh, but yeah so I've been recording some content over the past four months so I've got some good conversations and podcasts teed up for for you guys the next uh, couple months here and uh, yeah and looking forward to get back into into some more uh, podcast recordings so that'll be exciting um, I just want to also express the deep gratitude that I have for the podcast guests in those first 41 episodes um, without those guests the podcast would not be possible so thank you for sharing your insights thanks for giving us the time um, and contributing to all of our learning and for you listeners I hope that you really gain some value gain some different perspectives and we're able to learn from the guests that I had on um, in those first 41 episodes and, and you're going to continue to get that experience going forward. Um, I'm going to work really hard at that, but I'd love to hear from you guys uh, around what really resonated with you in those first 41 episodes. Um, it'll help me to really dial in and focus on the content and the guests that 
are really providing you value and you're finding valuable. So I'd love you to send me an email at eric, E-R-I-C, at eric gall g-o-l-l dot com uh, and just tell me what episodes you might like you know what topics you were digging and um, it'd be great to get that feedback from you or anything that i can improve on as well uh open to guest suggestions as well if there's someone you'd like to hear from um, on the podcast and hear their perspective and, and insights really open to that uh, you can also find us on facebook by searching empowering ability um, you can also go to the website at empoweringability.org. So yeah, so every two weeks, uh, expect expect some new content, a new episode along with the blog. Um, I'm also, so the podcast is currently free. I'm considering um, the idea of a pay-as-you-can type model. Um, so for, for those of you that are getting a ton of value from the podcast and you have the means to, to contribute, towards the production um and and work that goes into this podcast um then you'd be able to to contribute um so i'm this is something i'm working on uh, putting together uh, starting to build so um, i'll keep you updated and um you'd also get any resources that uh that i build and, and then working on so um however i want to make sure that this information stays uh widely open and available to everybody so those are just some of the thoughts on on where we're going and um that's enough of the housekeeping so uh the guest today as i mentioned helen reese helen is an adult sibling who supports her brother paul uh helen also joined me on episode nine where she goes into uh pretty pretty extensive depth on her story as a sibling uh she gives you a high level version of that story in this podcast but if you want to hear more depth on Helen's story her experience and her insights from her experience check out episode 9 um so Helen's a, a sibling she is a collaborator uh and she's a evaluator so she works with organizations to help them assess are they doing what they said that they're going to go do um and um and to look at their programs so that's enough for me. Let's welcome Helen on and start the conversation. Hey, Helen. Welcome to the Empowering Ability Podcast. Hi, Eric. How's it going? Awesome. It's a pleasure to have you back on the show. So Helen uh, was did a previous podcast with me in episode nine, uh, sharing her experience as a, as a sibling. Um, so excited to have Helen back on the show. Um, Helen and I have been doing quite a bit of work since together since mm-hmm. um, the last podcast that we recorded together. Um, right. So the purpose of this podcast is to kind of share that work more broadly. We haven't really had the opportunity to do that yet. So no. And we have to say that there's actually a third person who's been sharing in the workload. Yes. Um, her name, yeah. Her name's Becky Rossi and she can't be on the podcast today because she's having a baby. Yeah. She, <laughs> she might be in the hospital as we speak. So right. Right. But uh, I'm sure she was disappointed not to be able to join us. Yeah. And um, so for those of you that uh, this is the first Empowering Ability podcast you may have listened to or uh, in maybe you haven't listened to the podcast with Helen and I previously, um, we are both siblings, as is Becky. Mm-hmm. Um so maybe Helen, that might be a good place to start. Just to briefly give a high level overview of um, kind of you and, and your experience as a sibling, and I can do the same, and, and we can do the same for for Becky as well. Right. My story is that I live with my brother Paul, 
and my husband. Um, I became um, very suddenly Paul's primary supporter um, because both of our parents passed away, um, one right after the other. Um, it's been three years now that I've been um, supporting Paul, and it's been um, both a challenging and very rewarding experience. Um, I think that Paul is thriving and um, our relationship has grown and um, I've grown as a person as well. Yeah. And uh, it's been awesome getting to know you and Paul over the last, uh, last little bit. And I know that you play uh, a huge role in, in Paul's life. So I think that's pretty cool. Um, so, and you, yeah, for me, um, so about three and a half years ago, um, I was living in a in a different city in, in Waterloo at the time, Waterloo, Ontario, and um, and working there for a tech company. And um, I visited my family maybe once uh, a month, something like that, and, and spoke over the phone with my parents maybe on a on a weekly basis on, in separate calls. And um, and my sister Sarah, um, who has a, a developmental disability, a couple of years older than I am, we would chat on Facebook once in a while and. There was just this huge mounting tension in between really my mom and my sister, my mom being the primary um, caregiver for my sister um, to help her with, with whatever she needed help with uh, to assist with her disability. And um, anyways, the it was kind of <laughs> the ticking time bomb went off and um, I get a phone call from my mom, um, pretty distressed, saying that she basically couldn't do it anymore. And my sister, Sarah, had to move out. And, um, for me, that was a reflection point of the role that I wanted to play, um, in my family, uh, as a brother and and as a son. And, Mm um, yeah, so it was kind of a point where, um, I either stuck my head in the sand or, or I jumped in with two feet and and helped to find a solution. So, Mm -hmm. um, I think that's why we. We, one of the reasons why we've connected is because there's some commonalities in our stories, like both of us having to jump in with both feet, mm-hmm. both of us having changes in our career paths because of having jumped in with both feet. And um, a few other, we have a few other points in common as well that um, I think that this journey brings mm-hmm. for everybody. Yeah. Yeah. And some weird points as well in terms of like, education both having a right an mba and stuff which is just kind of weird well, and, coincidence and, but. <laughs> well and becky too yeah yes, the other thing becky as well so yeah that, that's really strange <laughs> yeah. um did you want to maybe share becky's a bit about becky's story helen sure so um becky yeah, she has been involved with Partners for Planning for uh, quite a long time and she's the sibling of an adult brother with Asperger syndrome So Becky, I know that Becky and her brother are quite close and she, um, um, I guess with her sister and her parents have worked really hard to uh, create uh, the best life for her brother and to to also to keep their family strong and to secure their collective futures. Um, Becky, like us, is, is quite dedicated to her brother um, and uh, works hard, works hard for, for him. Yeah. And she is a ball of energy <laughs> as well, yes. which has been Absolutely. great to, to keep us motivated and moving ahead um, as a team. So. Right. Right. Which has been and awesome. she, 
she lives here um, in the same city as I do, although we hadn't met each other before and the disability community is quite small. So um, it was nice to meet her and to know that she's in the same same town. Yeah. Now that I think of it, I haven't met Becky in person yet. Oh, yeah. I'll have to do that sometime. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Meet her and her her newborn. Her newborn, yeah. Yeah. Um, Okay, cool. So everybody kind of has a little bit of an idea of um, our journey or a snapshot of our journey. And um, so that's really what brought us all together um, in realizing that siblings can often get forgotten in the conversation and um you know looking at our stories i think we've all played really important roles in our brother or sister's lives and our family's lives um uh-huh. so we helen i guess really you were kind of <laughs> kicked this off and and brought me on board and then we kind of joined right. brought becky on board but yeah maybe share like where the i guess where we started from and right where maybe bring us forward to where we got to we've gotten to so far today right well the whole issue of civilians being left out of the conversation is certainly something that i i face in our family so my parents worked um had great plans but they hadn't really shared them with me um and i was sharing this story with Rebecca Pauls from Planned Lifetime Advocacy Network. And um, Rebecca and Plan have become very interested in the sibling um, journey as well because of the um, aging population and what they're seeing in their own lifetime membership. And at the same time, Dr. Yona Lunsky of the Center for Addiction and Mental Health was also uh, quite interested in the sibling um, story. She's also a sibling and uh, working on issues of mental health and developmental disabilities. So there were these two other folks sort of, you know, engaging in conversation with me. And we came, we landed on the idea of having a sibling conference. So that's not really an original idea. They have a huge sibling conference in the United States every second year as part of the Sibling Leadership Network. And, um, you know, the issues in the United States are really quite different than those here in Canada. It's uh, just the issue of Medicare alone or how they pay for their health um, care. I don't even understand it, but um is a is a dominant issue that we don't necessarily face. We have other kind of funding issues. So the idea percolated of pulling together a conference. And I think I'm, I had met you at that time, Eric, through Alan Mansky, mm-hmm. um, who put us in touch. And, um, and you very wisely <laughs> said, Helen, like, hold the phone. Do siblings really want to have a conference? Because, um, I, and I, I still really thank you <laughs> to this day for for asking that very important question before we launched headfirst into putting together together a conference that potentially wasn't needed or wanted. So, so what we did um, then is we decided to ask siblings. So we have um, a Facebook page for siblings that has been running for a little while now. We have. Uh, quite a large membership um, of siblings from Canada. And uh, we, we 
we sort of thought to ask that group and then some others, you know, would you like to get together? So have I told the story as you expected, Eric? Yeah, yeah. And um, I'm grateful that you invited me into that uh, conversation because um, it's, I mean, just on a personal level, it's really helped me understand the experience that I've lived as a, a sibling um, and, and that journey, which I want to share Um in a moment here, but, um, for people that are interested, Helen, uh, what's the, how can they, if they go to Facebook, what do they search for to join that group? Um, it's the sibling network. Okay. So just go to Facebook so, yeah, just, sibling network and, and you can join there. Right. And it's closed Facebook group. So there's a number of administrators and we'll, we'll approve you in. Um, and it's just a pl- place to chat, to pose questions, um, to post, you know, articles and stories. So we, we, um, there is a very large uh, sibling Facebook page again out of the United States. And, um, it's also quite valuable. So if you, it's called Sibnet. So if you wanted to join both that I'm sure you'd find it very interesting if you're not already connected to both. The difference again is, you know, in Canada, we, we face some different issues um, politically, of course, and around uh, funding and perhaps even the culture of care. Um, So that's why we've sort of hived off to this Canadian um, sibling network. Yeah, for sure. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, so (laughs) I come from the always the methodology of, um, I guess I like to think about it in terms of being a philosopher and a scientist. So the, you know, we had the, or really you kind of shared with me the philosophy or the idea of, Hey, siblings want a, uh, a conference. Um, mm-hmm. and then the scientist in me is like, eh, let's prove it. So, right. <laughs> um, we, we took that hypothesis, right. And then, and tested it. And, and, right. and that's really where we are today. So we, um, sent out a, a survey or we created a survey and sent it out to really understand the sibling experience. And we were fortunate enough to have 400 siblings across adult siblings across Canada, either reply to the survey or, and some of them even um, engaged in um, like phone interviews with us to share their experience, which was um, extremely valuable. So we're excited to share some of those findings and um, that we had and, and recommendations that we have also coming out of learning more about siblings. Yes, that survey, I have to say, it was amazing to get 400 um, people responding to the survey in, I think it was six weeks, which is an extraordinary number of people. And we couldn't have done that actually without a Partners for Planning that has a wonderful um, an extensive mailing list that and they sent it out for us, as did Community Living Ontario, who wrote an article and sent out our um, the link to the survey as well. So we had a lot of help to get the 400 um, siblings outside of our, our, our um, Facebook page. And um, it was really emotional for me reading the re- or watching the results come in and reading some of the comments because um, it was really validating the I felt like my experience as a sibling had 
been very much um, a lonely journey. Well, until I'd met you and Becky and a few other siblings that I'm friends with, but I really didn't have an extensive network, especially siblings that are doing some um, quite extensive care. And so, yeah, the survey was quite a quite an event <laughs> for us, I think, yeah, you say. For sure. Yeah. And I think just the emotion tied into it. Right. And then it mm-hmm. was interesting trying to look at those findings and detach the emotion and look at the facts. Right. Um, right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> which can be a challenge <laughs> when you're so close to that experience. Right. But, exactly. Um, yeah. Like just to share that gratitude, like, uh, you know, for P4P and Community Living Ontario and um, and plan out in, in Vancouver. And also, you know, uh, to the 400 people that are 400 adult siblings that replied. Um, just super yeah, grateful for thank taking you. the time to, mm-hmm. to answer that survey for us. So I think if I could just share maybe the the sibling life journey or experience that that we kind of see and this is at a high level but is it okay if i if i share that helen and go for it yeah free to chime in um Mm -hmm. with anything that that you want to add or or maybe i missed or maybe i'm you know wrong (laughs) (laughs) but um so I, I think I really, or we really started to come to this conclusion or draw these, I won't call it conclusion, but draw these insights through conversations with siblings and also correlating that to what we we're seeing with the data from the survey that was coming in. And then I think also using our our experience as a as a benchmark as well. So we we kind of looked at the data from the survey, but also the experiences as, as a sibling, at, like in, in life stages. So we kind of looked at not necessarily in the survey, but kind of qualitatively in this sibling life journey from the time we're born up into up to about 20, the 20 years old, being the stage where as a sibling, you really gain, um, you start to gain an understanding for uh, disability and for your sibling. And, and that might come uh, closer to your teenage years. But prior to that, really, we see or have noticed that uh, siblings mature faster. And they mature faster than a t- uh, 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 the average person. So to give a personal example, you know, at five or six years old, I would see my mom helping my sister get ready in the morning. And, you know, if I saw days where my mom was sleeping in or whatever, and my sister was getting up, I would jump in to help my sister get ready uh, for the day. And that's not necessarily a, a typical thing a sibling would do for another sibling, but just finding mm-hmm. ways to step in and, and support. And, mm-hmm. um, because of those types of experiences, just, um, I guess always wanting to support and care. But, um, I think that contribute contributes to a lot of siblings maturing, um, faster than, than the typical or average, average person. Mm. Interesting. Yeah. And then there's also this, uh, I guess, protector role that that can develop in in siblings at a younger age as well. Um, So no one's going to mess with your sibling because you're and I guess this is for all siblings, but I think it's especially um, for siblings that have another sibling with a disability. Right. Um, so I, I, you know, we, we see those commonalities among siblings kind of in, in their younger years, we'll say up to about 20. And then, 
a lot of us go on to university, right? 18, 17, whatever that is these days, um, college, and we, or, you know, we move out and we get our first job. And as siblings, you know, we go into that next stage of life uh, and next stage of growth where our sibling with a disability or developmental disability doesn't have typically that same opportunity. So they'll stay in school till 21 and then they'll, you know, what's being called age out. They're kicked out of high school at that point and they often, you know, will sit at home. Um, in my sister's case, you know, sat at home in, in my parents' basements for the better better part of 10 years, um, which is thankfully um, changing, but which takes a lot of work to to, to basically start at ground zero with that. But um, there's this, you know, real growth stage for us as um, as siblings. And then we see our brothers or sisters kind of go stagnant. And there's this, can this, uh, some, a lot of siblings call it a feeling of gro- uh, guilt um, and wanting that, those same opportunities for, their brother or sister, but not really knowing how. When it's also not not our call, like our parents are right. making that call. So we we I know that feeling of guilt and you know desire to help or or change, but it it wasn't my domain. And I'm sure you can identify with that too. Yeah, for sure. And I think that that um, continues for a lot of siblings. Uh, into their into their thirties because it's just kind of a next next stage or next evolution of growth, right? It's career building, it's starting a family, and um, those things take up a lot of energy. So that guilt can still exist because you see your sibling, a lot of um, people with disabilities, still living with their parents into their thirties. Um. And it's still that same experience of, you know, wanting better for your brother or sister with a disability, but not necessarily having the energy or having the um, influence or, or the power to, to help facilitate that for them. And then kind of, I haven't experienced this, but maybe you can share your experience to it, Helen. Um, and sorry, I think I just aged you uh, there. <laughs> um <laughs> So into when siblings, adult siblings get into their forties, um, I had it described to me by a sibling and I think this encapsulates it well as this looming feeling and they described it as they, they could see this, I guess, impending crisis of their parents aging and, um, they're not really being active or not being included in the planning for what's going to happen when the parents can no longer provide the support that they're providing for um, their son or daughter with a disability. And the sibling realizing that they're kind of the next person in line and they feel that responsibility to provide that support for their brother or sister with a disability. Um, right. And Helen, I know that you've kind of live through this. So maybe did you want to for add sure. to that with your experience? Yeah, for sure. I, I mean, uh, in my experience, I felt the looming a little earlier. Um, in my 30s, in my late 30s, I moved from Toronto back to my hometown of Ottawa to be closer to my brother, because I thought I think 
I thought to myself at that time, I need to be closer to my mom and my dad and my brother for the future. Um, in our in our family's case, the future came really fast. It came when I was in my my mid forties when my parents passed away, and um, I think that's atypical. I think um, I perhaps experienced that maybe a decade earlier than what uh, people would typically experience that in. But um, I certainly felt that looming for a very long time and acted on it. Uh, like I said, in my mid thirties. And really the, the data that we collected from the survey that we'll dive into a little bit deeper represents what you're saying in terms of siblings experiencing that in their, in their fifties, that increased responsibility. And um, we can't definitively say this because we don't have enough data to support it. But I think anecdotally and like just from a, a conversations that we've had we know that a lot of siblings um, encounter that increased responsibility which often throws the family into a crisis situation because right it means that parents health is declining which which increases that responsibility level that the sibling feels for their brother or sister with a disability and at the same time they're likely trying to manage their own family. They might have kids of their own. They might have a career. So that's an incredible amount of life to be trying to to live and, and to manage all at one time. Right. Yeah. So we we that's we didn't find that specifically, like Eric says, we you know, we or like you said, we we didn't have enough data to definitively say that, but we know that from the stories that we've heard and from um, the people who comments in their survey and from, yeah, the experiences of a few others. Yeah. So I, I imagine up to this point, some adult siblings listening or the adult siblings listening to this are probably nodding their head or um, connecting with quite a bit of what we're saying. And I think the first time that we kind of pulled this together, we're like, holy crap, like this is me or like strongly connect with that. Um, and it, for me, it helped me to kind of understand the experience, but also like I'm only right now I'm early thirties, right? So it gives me an understanding of what a lot of siblings are experiencing and, and being able to think forward and design what, how that could be different. Right. And I think we have to acknowledge too, that, um, you know, our, our siblings are living longer. Mm-hmm. Um, so th- I don't think we're the first generation necessarily. I certainly don't have any, any evidence of that, but I think it's a, a growing um, trend that t- people with developmental disabilities, because of great lives in the community, because of good health care, are living longer. Um, so, you know, perhaps this is a new, and they're not living um, in in institutionalized settings. So they're out out in the world. And, and um, that's maybe why brothers and sisters are are, we're starting to notice that there are a number of brothers and sisters um, facing this sort of, as you said, like a crisis point um, in their midlife. Yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. I think that's accurate. Um, so would it be a good point to maybe jump into um, some of the findings and, and recommendations that we, we have from the, the survey? Sure. Um, I guess maybe before we get there. Um, did you want to share, uh, I guess, where siblings can read more deeply or like kind of actually read through the 
the understanding the siblings experience report that we're we're sending out Right. So uh, Partners for Planning will be hosting our report on their website. We don't have the URL for it yet, um, but we will make it available through our Facebook page. We're hoping Partners for Planning will share it as well. And maybe some of our other community partners will um, share the report. So keep your eye open for it from as of April 10th. It'll um, hopefully be live. And um, you're also welcome to contact us directly if you if you can't seem to find it and you would like a copy perfect yeah and we'll Mm -hmm. we'll include the links with um in the show notes of the podcast and in the short blog that that'll go along with this as well perfect um okay cool so let's dive into some of the findings we're not going to share all of them but uh if you're interested go ahead and and take a look at the report and you can read through all of those for sure but we'll share kind of our maybe top one or two eat for helen will share her the ones that stick out for her the most and and i'll share the ones that stick out for me the most yeah so i guess for you helen what really you know connected with you or, or opened your eyes um with the the data that we collected right so i was a course um, selfishly interested in knowing were people having the same experience as me and um, I guess the the one finding I was very interested in was where are siblings living I was wondering if um, siblings were living with with their brothers and sisters um, we should probably say that the the bulk of the respondents Although it was a national survey, it was available to anybody in Canada, the bulk of our respondents did come from Ontario. And uh, I think that might be significant um, in, in different ways. But for the living arrangements, what we found is that about 85% of uh, the young people, 20 to 29, were uh, their brothers and sisters with a developmental disability were living with their parents. And um, that that's about double what is the national average. So we had a look at what Statistics Canada said about the number of young adults living with their parents. And Stats Canada says it's about 35%. So um, there's double the rate. And that I was interested in, especially as siblings got older, so the number of siblings who answered uh, our survey who were in the the 50 plus um, years was much lower than in the the younger years. And I think maybe that's a reflection of how we sent out the information. And uh, we found that uh, siblings were, as they got older, moving, of course, from living with the parents who are probably aging out or passing away to other living arrangements, such as living with their brother and sister, they're living with their sibling, um, living in a group home, and in some cases, even some institutional living, such as a long-term care facility or a hospital uh, environment. So the the living arrangements certainly changed in the later years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I find that super interesting as well. And so I'm just taking a quick look at the data now and the looking at um, siblings that live with their parents, right? Like 85% living with their parents, you know, from 20 to 29 is a, is a huge number. But, you know, even when we look at people with a disability that are between 40 and 49% 
the data that we collected is showing 58% of those siblings are still living with their parents. Right. It stays high, it yeah. stays high for a long time. And I mean, that was the case in our family. And I think yours as well, um, where our brothers and sisters were living at home in my case until our parents died. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and that's when families experience those crisis situations. Um, right. And, and, and with your story that fell on you. Exactly. Is there anything else that you wanted to add to, to that one, Helen? Um, it was interesting to me also how many siblings were living alone. Um, it starts out it's quite a small percentage between 20 and 25. So we found uh, about 6% of, of uh, brothers and sisters with a disability were living alone at that age. Um, and then uh, got a little bit bigger over time. And I know there's a lot of work being done right now to have people with developmental disabilities uh, living alone in their own apartments and um, with some support, uh, supported independent living, let's say. So I'd be curious to know, it's not in our data, but I'd be curious to know how that might change over time, that maybe we will see if we were to repeat the survey in five years or in 10 years, we would see that there would be more siblings living alone. Mm-hmm. I was surprised to see how many brothers and sisters with a developmental disability were not living with their brothers and sisters. So I, I guess in my personal experience, I just thought, well, what else is, what other option are there? Are there, there are no other options. So of course he's going to live with me. And I didn't even consider that there would be another choice. Like I think the I wouldn't want my brother to live in a group home anyway, but it, I think the list is apparently like decades long. So I, I thought that to live with a brother or sister would be really the only choice, but it doesn't look like that's really happening. Um, the numbers do go up like in the, um, between 40 to 49, it's about 10% are living with their brother and sister. And then between 50 and 59, it goes up to 24%. So there is a, a jump, um, but it's still a small number, um, much smaller than I had expected. Yeah. And I think you make a really good point about there being a lot of, I think there's a lot of good work being done to help people with, um, and families to think about what living on their own or having a home of their own would look like. Exactly. Um, and, and starting there rather than just assuming that, oh, okay, they're going to go live with their brother and sister or they're going to go into a group home. Much different thinking. And, and that's, I mean, why shouldn't someone with a disability or a developmental disability have that opportunity? Right. And, you know, I, I always talk about my relationship with my brother um, as being a very privileged relationship because we actually like each other and we actually get along <laughs> most of the time pretty well and make make good roommates. But I could certainly see that that wouldn't be for any, everyone. Plus, you know, I have this incredibly laid back husband who doesn't seem to mind um, living with Paul either. So so our our situation is quite unique. Um, I think that living with a brother and sister could be uh, quite stressful. Yeah, for mm-hmm. sure, for sure. And uh, yeah, I mean, 
when looking at my family's plan and my sister's plan, what she wants to do, she's actually, my sister Sarah is actually going to live with me for a couple of years um, here in the next future. So she's working on um, getting the supports that she needs together um, to help her with that. But um, with the eventual, you know, vision two years from now that she's um, creating a home of her own. Right. So. Yeah, yeah, so excited to see how that unfolds. Um, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm curious too. <laughs> <laughs> I'll keep you in the loop. Yeah, I mean, it is, It is. I have to say it is, um, as much as it's challenging, it's also a lot of fun. So, you know, it might be an option if somebody hasn't considered it yet. For sure. Well, maybe let's jump back and forth uh, here in terms of the findings that we find interesting. But I think, I think we both found this one interesting. Um, the top challenges that, siblings face. So when looking at the results, mental health came loud and came in loud and clear as a as a top challenge that that siblings face. And um, interestingly enough, it was actually the mental health of their brother or sister with a developmental disability. And then second to that was in terms of um, highest frequency of responses was um, mental health of their parents. Our, right. our, our parents, those being kind of the top two challenges that siblings are saying that they faced, um, followed by housing and third, managing relationships, fourth, and then uh, fifth being emotional supports for, their, for, their, for themselves. So what I've really found interesting with that is sibling, this, the challenges that, that we think that we're facing are, are really putting our brother and sister and then our parents' um, health uh, before ours, right? Right. Were you so surprised by this, Eric? I was. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I think me it too. makes sense because of the way that we grew up, right? Always wanting to to help or, or support others, especially our, mm-hmm. you know, first off, our sibling, and then second, our parents. So when kind of thinking it through further, it, it makes sense. And also the fact that you know our brothers and sisters with developmental disabilities have a higher than average chance of. Um, having a mental health challenge as they get older is it's obvious it's not lost on on us either right because that comes in first the mental health of my brother and sister so we know that people with developmental disabilities have what is the figure I think it's three to four times likely to have a mental health challenge as somebody who doesn't have a developmental disability right right and this is where our friend Yona focuses in on and dual diagnosis and, and mental health. Um, right. Thank so, God for that. Yeah. Um, what I found interesting though, is, you know, uh, I guess my logical or analytical brain says we, as siblings, we can't support our brother or our sister or our parents unless we take care of ourselves first. So if we're, uh, if we have poor health or poor mental health and, and we're struggling with our own issues, our own challenges, whatever that could be, whether it's diagnosed or not, um, and we're not attending to those, we can't really do a very good job of supporting our, our family members. Um, so even though we rank those challenges higher for our brother and, brothers and sisters and our parents, um, their mental health, like I think the logical first step is let's take care of ourselves first, um, which isn't the easiest thing to to do or or to prioritize sometimes. But I think that's the most effective way that we can play a supporting role. Exactly. 
Yeah, you have to take care of yourself first. I mean, it's uh, it's so challenging to take care of our families or to support our families that if we're not strong in being able to do that, it's just not going to work out very well. I think also you're right in um, that observation that we're, and you brought it up at the very beginning of this conversation, that we are groomed from a very young age to take care of others. And I think this is reflected in this this finding that we are doing a great great job of taking care of others. Yeah, <laughs> and there's there's so many ourselves. yeah so many positives that come come with that, but there's also the downsides and risks. So mm-hmm. if we're not aware of them, um, mm-hmm. I, I think it can put us in a bad spot. Um, right. So hopefully, just this conversation. I mean, I think it helps me even further my understanding of myself, but for those listening, you know, maybe it, it creates a bit of awareness or brings that up from their unconscious level to into their consciousness. Right. Um, yeah. So what other findings did you find, uh, interesting, Helen? Okay. So the, the other, um, finding I was really interested in was the intensity, the level of intensity or, um, experienced by age category. So we divided up the age categories and 20 to 29, 30 to 39, and so on. And you could see that uh, the 20 in the 20s and 30s, the intensity of support um, was lower than in the 50s and 60s. So we asked uh, siblings to rate it on a scale of 1 to 10. What is the, the intensity of support that they're providing their brothers and sisters? And um, like I said, the 20s, 30s, and even 40s were much lower. And then you see this jump in the 50s and 60s. Um, what I found really interesting, and this may be generational differences, or, or it's not really generations here, but um, differences in age categories, is that the 20 to 29-year-olds were reporting uh, that they were providing a little more um, su- of an intensity of support than, let's say, people in their 30s and in their 30s. And I thought, I wonder if that's because um, people have changed, that people in their 20s are more connected to their brothers and sisters than perhaps older folks. I'm, I'm not sure. Um, my sense is that. I don't know if you saw... Um, recently listened to Brian Goldman's uh, White White Coat Black Art, where he was interviewing these young women in their 20s who are looking after their sister, um, who is a person with autism or on the autism spectrum. They were so involved and so in tune to their sister. And even though I was very close to my brother throughout my whole life, um, I was never that uh, in tune. So I, or that aware, um, these girls were quite remarkable or these young women were quite remarkable. So I just wondered if there was, you know, a, that's a reflection of how times are changing and how people's perspectives of disability are changing. Yeah. I have a, I have a different hypothesis. Let's hear it. I don't have proof, but I, I have a hypothesis. Um, so often in today's society uh young people are going to college or university they'll move out and then once they graduate um it's not easy to find a job uh rent's expensive Mm. they often move back in with their parents where their brother or sister with a developmental disability is living so because they're sharing that same living space uh, my hypothesis is that that's when they're providing more support because they're home 
Right. And I can see that dropping in the 30, in the, you know, 30 to 39 range, because by that time, most people are somewhat established. They've moved out of their parents' place again. They might be starting a family. Um, Mm. So that's my, my guess. Could be. Yeah. We, we won't know unless somebody does a more detailed research into siblings. And that was actually one of our things that we were hoping would happen is that, uh, there could be a, a broader national survey into the needs and challenges of siblings um, done on a larger scale, right? For sure. So I guess the other one that was of interest to me were, or sorry, was um, the top needs um, that siblings identified. And what they really identified were, I guess, in general, the need for resources for their brother or sister or for their family. So the top response is being housing options, housing being the number one or uh, tied with um, funding very close. Um, and, and I guess finances, which is very similar to funding. So um, those okay. being the top three responses and, and really the, I, I think you can group those into resources um, and then mental health for their brother or sister coming in right after that is as a, as a top need. So I, I think that this tells a story of families needing more support, more resources. Um, and maybe even, I think what kind of lumps into this or, or can be helpful is different ideas and, and different ways of, of thinking about things like we talked about earlier, right? Like we don't have to make the assumption that our sibling with a developmental disability is going to live with us. Why right. not think about a home of their own, right? And and that oh. doesn't have to mean, you know, if we think about it creatively, it doesn't have to mean buying a house for them and, and you know, going to the extent of renovating that house. It could just mean simply, you know, what would anybody else do? Well, their first place, they'd probably rent an apartment, right? So what does that look like? Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, so I, I found it interesting that the top needs were really resource-based. Which was so different than what was identified as the top challenge, which was heavily emotional and right. and uh, mental health-related. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, and funding and finances is, is such a, a challenge. It's something that I know parents talk about a lot because I hear them when we're out at um, different events and... and um, and then managing finances once the parents are gone. So again, we're not really sure what they mean when they identified the top needs around finances, but we can only imagine it's like having enough money to support um, their brother or sister with developmental disability to have the life that they need right. or want. Yeah, and and I, mm-hmm. this so along with the findings, we have provided eight recommendations i believe for for people to think about so for siblings to think about for families to think about for organizations to think about for governments to think about and um what we're talking about here in terms of resources ties in really well with with one of the recommendations that we have around uh poverty reduction so i know this is something that you're pretty passionate about helen did you want to talk a bit about that recommendation Right. So uh, we know that most people with developmental disabilities are going to live um, their lives in poverty because that's the way our system has been set up, um, that people 
uh, are not allowed to, um, even if they have their own resources, able to lift themselves up much beyond the low income cutoff. And so what we're recommending is um, a, a comprehensive national funding approach to make sure that um, Canadian citizens have financial safeguards and that they're not going to be at the risk of poverty. And I know that um, there's much discussion around a guaranteed annual basic income where we have some basic income pilots in Ontario. And I think Quebec is also doing some work around the minimum income program. I'm not sure if those are exactly the solutions, but, you know, ensuring that there is some kind of safeguard there where people are able to um, uh, access their own resources if they have them, or or not simply just not falling below the low income cutoff point. Um, there's some other things that can happen, perhaps with the registered disability savings plan, um, making that easier to access or um, um, easier to use. So it's really recognizing and understanding that uh, life in poverty is not a good life for people with developmental disabilities. And it also puts brothers and sisters at risk um, who are are, um, leading the support, perhaps once the parents are gone. I know in in our house, um, for the last three years since my mom died, and we've been working on all the different um, trying to figure out all the different funding and finance um, tools and how to manage it so that you're observing rules has been extremely challenging and has taken up a lot of my time. Um, I guess the other piece about that, uh, whenever I mention this, that there's some kind of challenge, people always say, well, I know a guy who has this, that and the other. And I think, well, that's not the way it should be. You shouldn't have like some secret resource, even if it is. I don't know if it is because I never follow up on those. But, you know, it shouldn't shouldn't be that way. It should be that there's that it's clear, that it's um, solid, that there's a way of doing it, that um, of managing finances or accessing finances and funding that works. And it works also nationwide. I don't know why we always have to d- divide things up by province and territory that so really our big recommendation here is to uh, come forward with a comprehensive national funding approach Mm -hmm. and to make that to make it easy and clear so people can understand it um, and benefit from it and Helen I just want to acknowledge you here on this point around poverty and and supporting people um, that are in poverty with a with a disability and really for your work that you did with with gifts and, and assets and changing ODSP um, in Ontario. So maybe could you Thank briefly, you. yeah, you're welcome. You're welcome. And again, just grateful from, you know, from all the families out there. So much gratitude for the work that you did on that. And can you just give a very short overview of, of the change that you were able to invoke there? Sure. So um, we wanted to try and change the rules of ODSP um, to mirror what was happening in British Columbia, where a person with a disability could hold $100,000 in assets and be gifted an unlimited amount um, 
uh, that that's what was happen, happening in British Columbia. Here in Ontario, a person with a disability could only hold $5,000 in assets and be uh, gifted $6,000 a year. So uh, through the work that we did with um, effective advisory committee and then pulling together a significant coalition of about 50 different organizations, hundreds of individuals and um, different champions and advocates, we did lobby the government of Ontario and they did make a change. Um, it wasn't the change that we were looking for, but it might be a good first step where they are changing. They changed the assets that a person could hold to $40,000. So that's up from five um, to $40,000. And then they changed the gifts from $6,000 to $10,000. So uh, while, you know, we're always really grateful for any sort of positive changes that come out of the government of Ontario, um, it wasn't what we were looking for. And we'll see what happens after this next election. We might um, uh, see if there's some more work that we can do around that to get it to a, a more significant change that really means uh, poverty alleviation for those who are receiving Ontario Disability Support. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I mean, those are pretty significant changes. Like $40,000 might not seem like a lot, but it's a lot more than five. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. Well, well, those rules, I think, were created at a time when people with disabilities perhaps were not working as much as they are now. Right. Um, and then also we have to consider inheritances and um, different changes uh, to finances and funding when a parent's pass away. Although I have to say there was, in our family, there was no real change in funding, which I found amazing. So I remember going in Ontario, we have the um, developmental services. And I remember going to them after my mom died and saying, like, you know, my brother is now essentially orphaned <laughs> and there's, um, is, is there any way that we can um, get a few more passport dollars or some supported independent living or something to help uh, me help my brother um, uh, live a, a good life now that his primary supports are no longer there? And I have to say, nothing changed. So um, just as a heads up to brothers and sisters out there that um, just because your parents pass away doesn't mean that developmental services is going to respond to you any differently. In fact, um, they're not going to. Yeah. In my experience anyway, it's very frustrating. Yeah, it sounds like it It was <laughs> um, and still is. So yes. Um, yeah, I can appreciate that. And I think the other the other thing that you brought up, you know, uh, needing to have a guy or a, a person to go figure out um, the right solution here in terms of finances and resources for your family or your brother and sister. I think just some some simple things that um, siblings should definitely educate themselves about are the RDSP. Um, I think most, sure. in most cases, that's pretty much a no brainer. Um, mm -hmm. there's free money available there, or I'll call it free money, but government, um, money available there, um, right. for people with disabilities. And, um, and then the other thing to look about, especially when it comes to like inheritances and things like that is a, in Ontario, it's called a Henson trust, um, outside of Ontario, it's mostly referred to as a discretionary trust. 
Um, right. And that is a way essentially to hold assets um, for your brother or sister with the um, developmental disability, um, especially when it gets over in Ontario, when once you're over that $40,000 mark. Right. You still have to know um, for Hanson Trusts, um, you need to have your eyes wide open around how to use your Hanson Trusts and even going and setting one up. I mean, we could do a whole other podcast on that story alone about how to go and set up a Hanson Trust inside a, in a side of bank. So it, it, you need to be very, very aware and remembering at that time when you're doing those things, you're under a lot of duress. I was, you know, deeply grieving, worrying, and then you're doing these like really significant financial transactions. So it's, it's not a time to do that kind of thing alone. You need support to do that. So, um, but yeah, we're, we're going down a bit of a rabbit hole (laughs) (laughs) and there's so many of them, but we need, um, yeah, we don't need that guy. We don't need that special guy who knows a special something. What we need is a good national plan to alleviate and keep people with disabilities out of uh, poverty because, uh, again, you know, that affects the financial situation of brothers and sisters who end up in their um, the supporting role um, one day as well. You know, it's a I won't lie. It's a financial it's a financial pressure. Yes, exactly. So I, I think I'll take your cue there. And we've exhausted this one, or maybe not exhausted it, but talked quite a bit about it. So let's share a couple of other recommendations that we have. Uh-huh. One that really resonates with me. And um, I think uh, it really helped to form the connection that that you and I have and, and that we have with Becky is for adult siblings to connect with other adult siblings to share their uh-huh. experiences and, and their life story um, is interesting in a conversation with Don Mayer, um, who is, uh, I'll call uh, a sibling expert or someone that um, has served the sibling community in the United States and actually all over the world for the past 30, 35 years or so. One thing that he shared with me and, and it made a lot of sense is that siblings just especially adult siblings just don't connect with each other to share their experiences which is really weird when you compare it to um the the experience of a parent because parents are connecting with each other um essentially as soon as their son or daughter is is born or at you know, an early age of, of diagnosis, they're going to medical appointments, they're, you know, going to, to programs for people with disabilities, and, and parents are connecting with each other, and sharing in right. the experience as a parent, but siblings aren't having that same experience. And I'll share for myself, I mean, as an ex, as a as a sibling, it's not always easy to share some of the experiences that I'm having with my family because with my friends, because they I, sometimes I feel like they just won't get it or they don't understand because they haven't been through it. And sharing my experience with you, Helen, it was like, yeah, she she gets me. Mm-hmm. And then there's the um, connecting with siblings who whose parents have passed away and they are in the the role of providing su- full support. Uh, you know, that that too is a very special journey. And um, I've only connected with one other person who's in the same shoes as me. And we don't get a chance to connect very much, even though our brothers and sister belong to the same organization. 
um, because we're both so busy. But uh, sometimes they sit us at the same table and we get to chat. But um, Mm -hmm. yeah, it's really important to connect. And yeah, when when I meet other brothers and sisters who um, are on the same journey, it's always such a relief and it's so validating. Although I have to say here, Eric, though, that there's two kinds of conversations, or maybe there's more than two, but the reason why you and Becky and I connect is because of a certain set of values. And uh, we we connect because we have some, should I talk about the compa- the values of our collective here? Yeah, maybe, I think it's, I mean, we've already gone down the path. So let's talk right. about, let's talk about <laughs> the sibling collaborative. Um, did well, you wait, wanna... wait, wait, let me, let me say what I'd like to say what the two different conversations okay. are. You, okay, go. And don't. then, and then you can go into the sibling collaborative. <laughs> okay. Okay. So the two, I, um, we're, I am not interested. Um, and I don't think you or Becky were either in having a discussion around, um, burden or the burden narrative of our brothers and sisters. And, um, you know, our, our values and the way that we talk to each other and why we connect is because of our compassion and our respect and, um, for our, our brothers and sisters and that we're proud to be on this journey with them. And, so, and that really has informed um, how the Sibling Collaborative has come together. Our main purpose of the Sibling Collaborative is to connect siblings um, and strengthen families. So we believe by by siblings connecting with other siblings and learning and growing through those connections that we are are strengthening families. Mm -hmm. And Eric, do you want to talk a little bit about values? Yeah, so we've put together some, some common values, which Helen already give you a bit of a sneak peek into. And so there's four values that, um, that we put together that we, uh, really believe in. And, and these are the, the types of values that we would want people to embrace that are interested in, in becoming a part of the sibling collective, whether you're a, a sibling, um, another family member, a person with a developmental disability, or you're uh, an organization that's, um, interested in, in supporting siblings. So really around, so the first value being realizing change with compassion. So, um, we really feel it's important that, um, that we're taking action towards living the lives that, that we, that we want to live and, and taking that creative mindset to, to do so and, and to doing that with compassion and including our brothers and sisters and our families in making those decisions and, and in that change. So that being the first value. The second one, which Helen touched on, uh, is respect or, or mutual respect. So we, give people agency over their own lives. We give our brothers and sisters agency, um, empowerment over their own lives. And we take into consideration with all those people involved in, in what we're doing and in those change in, you know, change that might be happening and, and, um, and the impact that it might have on their lives. The third value is, uh, collective solutions. So we're all about finding a way forward um, and doing that by learning, working, and, and co-creating together um, as a collective. And the fourth one um, is unlocking potential. So often our brothers and sisters or, or people with developmental disabilities have very low expectations put on them. 
And as brothers and sisters, as um, as organizations, as family members, we have the opportunity to hold this really big, bold vision for our brothers and sisters and our families. And we just have this amazing uh, capability to be creative and, and resourceful. And there aren't really any limits to that. So those are the, the values and, and the mindsets that... Um, that we hold as a as a collective. So, does that mm-hmm. give a good overview, Helen? Is there anything you want to add, or, or maybe yeah, that's that I, awesome. missed? Okay, that's awesome. Thank you for articulating that so well. So, it, it it's just a really important part of this conversation is that we are not viewing this as as a a burden, but something that we are an opportunity and um, an opportunity certainly with challenges, but an opportunity where we can make some um, big changes. Yeah, for sure. Um, So I'm excited to talk a bit more about the sibling collaborative and where we're going with it, but Mm -hmm. let's kind of keep that as a teaser for a moment. There's a couple of more um, recommendations that I wanted, or that I think we wanted to share um, Mm -hmm. before that. So did you want to share the one around mental health? Um, Helen, I know that one's pretty important to, to us. Oh yeah, sure. So it sort of speaks to the finding. Well, it does speak to the findings that we talked about earlier, where we, um, we know that people with intellectual disabilities or developmental disabilities face a rate of mental illness that's, um, three to four times higher than the general population. So we want, um, that to be our, it is our recommendation that that be uh, recognized and integrated into um, how how um, people with developmental disabilities are seen in the healthcare system, maybe inside um, developmental services or uh, organizations that work with families and people with developmental disabilities as well. So we're not going to um, we're not going to escape that. Uh, so we wanted we actually were pretty specific. We wanted the re- um, incorporating um, the issue of mental health to be part of the developmental services sector, um, the, what we just talked about, different organizations. Um, we want the developmental services sector to build capacity around mental health with individuals with a de- developmental disability. And we also think that that needs to happen throughout the lifespan. So if you start working, building a strong base when um, our brothers and sisters are young and that they can grow up resilient and strong, we hope, um, and reducing any kind of possibilities of mental health crisis when they get older. And um, yeah, just recognizing that this is part of our life. We can't um, escape it and we need it to be in- included in the conversation. And actually, more importantly than that, it's not just a conversation piece. We need tools. We need resources and information and um, support services uh, to help deal with the mental health crisis. Yeah. And I think what stands out for me is the solution isn't just to give people that are diagnosed with uh, mental health challenges, psychotropic meds. Um, no. Oh, <laughs> and our, thank you. our friend Yona um, has done a fair amount of research on this and, and people being given medication that they don't really need. Mm-hmm. More to manage, quote unquote, behaviors, um, as opposed to really understanding what's going on. And I think, in all fairness, um, there hasn't been a lot of 
uh, research done into that yet. And that's why we're so privileged to have Yona, um, you know, as an advisor um, to this project, because uh, this is her area of expertise. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think it's so important. And I know that um, you're actually doing a talk around resilience coming up, which I'm actually going to be, am. I'm going to be there to watch you. Live, oh, by the way, so. oh, I'm so excited. <laughs> That's great. Um, <laughs> So I know that, you know, mental health and the whole resilience piece is, uh, is important to you and, and dear to, to your heart. So um, I'm excited to see some of the work that, that you produce with that. Thank you. Yeah. Oh, now I'm worried. <laughs> <laughs> now the people on the podcast can go watch the video of you as well, or, or they can come yeah. to the live event in Toronto. It's yeah. April. April 19th. 19th okay. And it's on the Partners for Planning website. It's called The Art of Resilience. And to watch it live by webcast is actually free, I think. I think it'll be a really good event. And uh, I really appreciate that Partners for Planning is ho holding this around such a positive topic, you know, the topic of resilience. So I'll yeah, look forward to sharing sharing some of my insights around that and how our family and how me, Paul, and my husband, Stefan, have managed to come through some very, very hard times. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm excited to, to see that talk. And, and is Paul going to be on stage with you for that? Yes. And I have to say that the other thing I deeply appreciate that in lieu of just having me uh, talk, that, that we were invited to co-present. So we're both looking forward to presenting together um, about how we, we both have supported each other and, and come through our hard times together. Awesome. Excited. Yeah. To, excited to see that. Thank you. Yeah. So maybe we can just share one more recommendation and then we'll get into more of the sibling collab and, and where we're going with that and how people can, um, can get involved. Um, so for me, the, I guess these two recommendations are, are tied together somewhat, um, around the theme of conversation and, Helen, you mentioned this earlier, I think a couple of times in the podcast is, or you mentioned it specifically around your situation is you weren't really included in the plan that your parents had for Paul. Mm -hmm. And, you know, as your story unfolds, you share that really you had, once your parents um, were no longer there for Paul, you just had to start from square one and create the plan or you know try and pick up the pieces of what was there and and, and stitch together a plan right and it sounds like that was extremely challenging i think my dad had a plan my dad always had a plan he just forgot to ask me if i <laughs> if that plan suited me and if that's something i wanted to do or show you um, the plan or show oh showing would have been great yeah yeah and so whatever they had intended is not what has happened i don't think that's actually unusual i think that you can create the most elaborate plans in the world and they they may or may not come true, right? Um, especially if you're expecting somebody else to execute them. I think the one thing that my parents did well, um, and I'm deeply grateful for this, and they I know, know that they were inspired um, by plan um, to do this very well, which was to take care of their financial future. So mm -hmm. I think my parents were one of the first people in Ottawa to open an RDSP and, um, you know, they saved really hard so that, uh, Paul could have a, uh, um, a Henson trust that I could access as he needed. So, so they did do the financial planning piece, right. And I think that's, a, um, a very concrete and tangible 
uh, piece to know what to do. It's uh, the rest of the life planning, like the housing, um, the funding, the supports, um, all those kind of things. We most certainly started from scratch. And I kind of feel like we start from scratch um, on a regular basis on that one. <laughs> right. Yeah. So what we're really recommending is that whoever is going to be involved in executing that plan, which more than likely is a sibling to include them in that conversation. Um, we recommend that it's a, you know, it's a family conversation or it's a family and friends conversation, including that, you know, brother, including your brother and sister or sister that has a developmental disability. For sure. Yeah. Um, and, and to be open about that and to craft that together to make sure everybody's aligned with that plan. Um, mm -hmm. Because if you're not right, I mean, even if your parents, if, if the parents create a plan and the sibling or the siblings say like this plan is stupid, they're going to go do something else anyways. So why even create right. it? Exactly. Exactly. I think that it must be a very difficult conversation to have. I know that when my parents sometimes would mention, Oh, well you can move in here or whatever, you know, I, I probably didn't make it easy for them to have that conversation with me. I think I run, I remember sort of running away whenever that came up because the prospect of your parents not being here is very difficult mm -hmm. and a very sad um, thought. So, you know, there's some mediators and people who are expertise in, who have expertise in mediating these, those kind of conversations. So if it is really hard for a family, I think it'd be worthwhile um, having a mediator involved. Uh, I wish we had done that. I wish we had had some um, experts helping guide the conversation so that I would listen and um, that we could have had a had a better talk about it. Yeah, yeah. And these aren't um, easy conversations. Um, no. I, I think they can be um, over time, but to start it off, it's, you know, how do I approach that? And um, the idea of having a, a mediator or a facilitator to help with that conversation, I, I think is, can be definitely very valuable. Um, right. There's also a quote that comes to mind um, from Mike Tyson, actually, the boxer. Um, mm -hmm. Everybody has a plan until they get punched in the face. Right. And I was actually just going to say something very similar is that it's not one conversation. Yes. Because because we get punched in the face over and over and over <laughs> again in life. <laughs> and um, so that conversation needs to be ongoing as things change. You know, people get married, people get divorced, people have children, people, you know, things, they have to move for work. Things change all the time. Exactly. And uh, so it's an ongoing conversation. Yeah. Yeah, that plan's going to evolve, right? And mm -hmm. I think kind of the so that communication theme ties into the next recommendation that I wanted to talk about um, is really around uh, recommending that organizations that support families of an individual that has a developmental disability to directly communicate with siblings and and to use language that includes siblings, whether that's an invitation to a service or to a meeting or to an information night, whatever that may be, to be inclusive and to directly communicate with siblings so that they feel invited. Because so often as a sibling, it's, oh, my parents are going off to this. They're going off to that um, to learn about things. And that information somewhat gets filtered back through my parents, but it's so diluted that I don't really get much value from it. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. Do you want to add anything to that? 
to that one? Um, well, yeah, I think just I I think just opening the conversation more broadly because you know we are saying well a lot of conversations are only about parents and now we're saying include the siblings but the fact of the matter is that there may also be other people who are going to be the primary supporters that need to be included in that conversation as well so just um you know not every not every family is um just the parents and to just sort of widen widen that scope to include uh more people mm-hmm. awesome so that gives a, a really good snapshot of a lot of the findings and the work and the research that we've done so far and some recommendations that we've created and we're even we've done all this work so far and um uh, really because we're passionate about it and there's still so much more, more work that we want to do and a lot of these recommendations you know we want to put some more blood sweat and tears into into making some of this stuff happen so as Helen and I have talked about that's why we've created the sibling collaboration and the purpose of the sibling collaboration as Helen shared to be to connect siblings so that they can share in their experiences and share learning and to strengthen families. So Helen, maybe there's a good opportunity for us to share some of the things that, that we're working on and and where we're going. So um, we heard from siblings through the survey that they really wanted to have a place to go to find information about, um, you know, their their supporting role with their brother and sister. So I guess over the next little while, um, we're going to, the Sibling Collaborative is going to look at, at um, uh, evolving um, some online information. So Partners for Planning will kindly be hosting our report and, um, and uh, perhaps some resources as well. But over time, we'll, we'll try and build that into something comprehensive and, and interesting and viable for for siblings. And I guess, Eric, we, we, we have to go full loop to the whole, um, conference idea, don't we? Yes. Because that's where this started. This whole thing started with the idea of holding a a sibling conference. And that's something we would still like to do. Um, but I think what Eric, and Becky and I realize is that it's not anything that we can do alone. It's something that we need to do um, with an organization. So we are uh, opening the conversation or we're open to any conversation with uh, organizations who are interested in uh, fully or partially or in part supporting a sibling conference. Um and we would like to, we did, you know, get confirmation through the survey that indeed siblings uh, do want to get together. And the area um, where they'd like to get together is in the GTA. So that's what we have in our, I guess, in our long-term view, eh, Eric? Yeah. And for those of you outside of Ontario, GTA, Greater Toronto Area. Oh, sorry. <laughs> it's all good. It's the center of the universe. Yeah. I think everybody knows that, right? Right. <laughs> If you're from Toronto, it is. Um, well, then, uh, if you're from Toronto, would you say GTA, or you probably just be like Toronto is the center of the universe? Um, I, don't know. <laughs> but, I live in Ottawa. I live in Ottawa, so <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I, I think the other thing maybe to add is, even in the absence of um, 
a larger amount of funding for a conference or a partnership with organizations to hold a conference. Um, we're still planning on doing some meetups to test some of the content and, and to test the idea of connecting siblings um, and to learn from that, to roll that into, into a conference. And yeah, and there's a few more things that we're, we're looking at testing and which, you know, things like uh, peer-to-peer mentoring with, um, so sibling, adult sibling to adult sibling and uh, creating some content around resiliency, which I know you're already working on with your talk, Helen, but continuing right. down that vein. And, um, you know, we're also interested in creating some content around uh, helping siblings to to bring a creative mindset into their lives um, and into their families' lives and, and thinking about designing um, their or helping their sibling design design their life and to create a fulfilling life for, for them and their families. So there's lots of things that, um, that we're interested in, in working on and, and working toward. Um, so if any organizations are, are interested in, in partnering in, in those things and either have some, some resources that they'd like to, to share or contribute towards that, then we would love to, to have those conversations. Right. And I think that's why we called it the sibling collaborative, because we want to collaborate with others, whether it's other individuals or um, organizations that share our values um, um, to work towards supporting siblings um, to help their brothers and sisters have a good life. Yeah, for Mm -hmm. sure. So if there's folks interested in connecting with us, so other adult siblings or um, family members or organizations um helen what is the best way for them to do that well there's a couple of ways one is to join um the facebook page that we mentioned at the beginning the we called it the sibling network because it was um created before um we got the sibling collaborative together we'll see about changing that name but for now it's called um uh, you can look for it on facebook as the sibling network you can also join our email list uh which is at the bottom of the report. When you get the report, you'll be able to see it there. Um, or you can reach out by email at info at siblingcollaborative.org. And of course, if you if none of those work and you end up finding me or Eric on Twitter or Facebook, you can also just shoot us an email or a message and we can um, guide you to the right place. Fantastic. And I'll include all of that um, in the show notes of the podcast and in the blog. Thank you. Yeah. So it's been a pleasure uh, doing this podcast with you today, Helen. Uh, Is there any final thoughts that you want to leave the listeners with? Um, I do, actually, Eric. I saw somewhere um, a quote, and I wish I could remember who and I can't, but um, it it said that if you want to invest in the long-term well-being of, of people with developmental disabilities, you need to invest in their brothers and sisters. And I just think that that quote sort of sums up um, everything that we've been working towards. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I believe that we can attribute that quote to our good friend, Don Mayer. Oh, thank you. I'm glad you know. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. Well, that's a a, a great way to to wrap up the podcast. So again, pleasure chatting with you today, Helen. And uh, yeah, thanks, Eric. Looking forward to continuing to move forward with the Sibling Collaborative. And I hope that uh, our listeners today um, check out the report and consider how they might um, 
want to contribute with the sibling collaborative or even hopefully just at least some ideas to take back to their family. So, Right. Great. Thank you, Eric, for putting this together. My pleasure. All right, Helen, we will chat soon. Okay. Talk to you soon. Bye. Bye. So big thank you to Helen for coming on the podcast today and a big thank you for including me in this idea and this work um, that we're both super passionate about and uh, we are on a mission to make a difference in this world uh, for adult siblings, for people with disabilities and, and for families. So super exciting work. Uh, excited to bring you next week's podcast or next, sorry, two weeks from now's podcast with Nick Maisie. And Nick is a gentleman out of Perth, Australia. Um, and I was introduced to Nick through uh, our mutual friend, Janet Cleese. So thank you for that introduction, Janet. Uh, Nick started an organization called Befriend, which helps uh, people that are looking for friendship to find friendship. So it's not just necessarily people with disabilities. Um, and in late 2017, Nick went on a fellowship that took him across the world, several different countries, visiting several different groups in search of answers on a couple of questions, really focusing in on what the building blocks to belonging and being in relationship are. And Nick shares his stories, and his insights that he's been able to synthesize and take away from that experience. It's a super interesting conversation. If you're interested in community and relationships, I think you're going to love this podcast, so I suggest checking it out. That's all from me. Cheers for now. Big love. Adios. Talk in a couple weeks. And thank you so much for listening to the podcast today. Uh, if you like this episode and you think you know someone that would benefit, please share it with them. Uh, be a part of the change to think differently about disability. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. Visit us at empoweringability.org for more podcasts and resources to help you and your loved ones impacted by disability build a full and meaningful life.